Well, today is the third Sunday in, uh, of the, after the Epiphany, and today we celebrate the last of those events in our Lord's life that was in old times celebrated on the Epiphany. So if you remember uh, from previous weeks, we talked about the Epiphany kind of um, in, in the ancient church had uh, uh, celebrated a bunch of things from the Lord's early part of his ministry and his early life, but the Western Church later on decided to uh, uh, spread that out over the first three or four weeks following the Epiphany, and today we kind of complete that, uh, that session. Last week we talked about one of the most important events in our Christian lives that many of us do not remember, and that is our baptisms. Um, some of us do, but not, not all of us. And uh, this week we are going to talk about uh, the, an important event in many of our lives that we ought to remember, um, our weddings. If you don't remember, you better, you better find out before your anniversary comes out. Let me, let me tell you that one. <laughs> well, just two weeks ago, Heather and I celebrated our fifth anniversary, and uh, quite a few of you all were at our um, wedding in New Braunfels at, at Christ Our King Anglican Church five years ago. When planning that wedding, one of the things that I insisted on was the use of the traditional Anglican liturgy for the service itself. It was a little modernized, but it was basically the, the one that we all know. Because even if you were not married in an Anglican church, um, chances are your marriage service did incorporate things from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Because for us English speakers, the Anglican marriage rite uh, or at least the beginning of it, is the one that we all know. So you can see this on page 300 in the Book of Common Prayer. In, uh, it's in your pews. Page 300. We begin, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate, instituted of God, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee, which is, of course, today's gospel, and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men. Well, in these few well-known words, we have an excellent summary of the theological significance and rationale for Christian marriage from the scriptures. First of all, we see that it's honorable because God instituted it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Number two, we see that it is a mystery, which is, oh, actually, I think you forgot about my hat. There we go. Number two, <laughs> we see that it is a mystery, which is the Greek word that we translated into Latin as sacrament, is a mystery or sacrament that signifies Christ and the church uh, per Ephesians chapter 5. Third of all, we see that Jesus blessed it with his first miracle in today's gospel from John chapter 2. And then fourth, we're commended to honor it by keeping ourselves from sexual immorality both inside and outside of marriage per Hebrews chapter 13. So in today's gospel, we're going to see how Jesus' blessing of a marriage speaks to our own marriages, but more importantly, tells us something about Jesus and his grace towards us as members of his bride, the church. So some of us here are not married, 
Um, some it's yet, some are widows, some, some, uh, some may not be called to marriage. But nevertheless, this has something to teach us all because we are all part of Christ's bride. He is our bridegroom if we are baptized Christians. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse 1, John 2, 1, found on page 113 in your prayer book. St. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Well, archaeologists aren't completely sure that we've yet found the ruins of Cana, though we do have a few candidates, all of which are little tiny villages. And that suggests that this wedding was probably a family affair and that it was very likely that Jesus or Mary, um, or and Mary rather, were related to the, uh, the couple, um, at least in some distant sort of way, because that's the way village life works. Everybody is family in little tiny villages. The text certainly suggests that Mary was invited first and that Jesus and his disciples came later, possibly as her guests. They, were, uh, they may have been Mary's plus 13, <laughs> as, as it would be. Oh, actually, I don't think there were, there were yet 12 disciples, but you know. Well, the 17th century Anglican divine John Coson, he observes that Mary was likely invited first because there was a first century custom to invite mature, godly, and modest women to help the bride and to be a role model for her. In those days, wedding feasts were multi-day affairs. You can see a picture of this if you ever watch a fiddler on the roof. It, it's, uh, it's similar to the way that goes. Well, Kosen says that the fact that Mary would have been invited as one of these women, uh, these mature, godly, and, and um, modest women, shows that the couple was taking the idea of having a holy marriage seriously, and that this may be why Jesus and his disciples took a bit of a break from ministry to come to the feast. Kosen then gives us some advice for our own Christian marriages. He writes... The only reason why Christ does not show up at more of our weddings nowadays is that we do not first invite his mother, which is to say we do not invite sobriety and moderation together with an holy intention to be joined together now and for the rest of our lives in the fear of God and in the keeping of his commandments. We, indeed, we ought to take Kosin's admonition seriously if we are to have our marriages be pictures of Christ and his church as per Ephesians chapter 5. We ought to come into marriage differently than the world does. The world looks at marriage as being ultimately about me, my fulfillment, my personal fulfillment, my personal happiness, with the escape clause of irreconcilable differences, which doesn't really mean anything because it means everything, when we don't feel fulfilled and happy. But Christian marriage is about honoring God by loving that closest neighbor, that is our spouse, as ourselves. With the self-sacrificial love of Christ and submitting as unto the Lord, even as the church submits to Christ. 
And again, we see the Blessed Virgin Mary as an example of that kind of submission in this passage. When she tells Jesus about the lack of wine, his response can certainly seem a little bit colder or harsh or maybe even a rebuke almost. But instead of doubting his love, she sends the servants to him in faith, trusting in his goodness, kindness, and compassion. Uh, Martin Luther writes, God's kindness and not our feelings remains in us. Here you see his mother retains an unfettered faith and holds up an example for us. She is certain that he will be merciful even though she does not feel it, and it's certain that she feels differently than she believes. Thus she freely commends the matter to his kindness and demands from him neither time nor place, neither manner nor measure, neither person nor name. He'll do it when, he, when it pleases him. Well, that's the kind of faith that Christian marriage is supposed to illustrate, a marriage that's centered on Christ. So let's continue in our gospel with verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. St. John calls the miracle at Cana the first of his signs. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs, each revealing Jesus' messianic character and glory in an extraordinary miracle. So today's Gospel, we see that miracle in the exceptionally large quantity and exceptionally high-quality wine. Six stone jars with 20 or 30 gallons of wine becomes the equivalent of about 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Even if the whole village was at the wedding feast, that is a large amount of wine. <laughs> Some of us are like, nah, we could handle it. <laughs> well, Martin Bucer, he's a, who was a German reformer that helped... Uh, Thomas Cranmer write the first book of Common Prayer, he snarkily pointed out that some groups of Christian in his days, and I might add in our days as well, would probably have rebuked or even excommunicated the Lord for, for that kind of thing if they were there. I mean, after all, this is extremely extravagant, and it could lead to drunkenness, right? But there's an important spiritual lesson here. In the Old Testament, Wine is a sign of joy and of God's blessing. Drunkenness isn't, but wine is. <laughs> Running out of wine was a symbol of the barrenness of first century Judaism. And we need Christ to give joy, blessing, and life to our religion. St. Augustine says that the tasteless water represented the Old Testament scriptures while the savory wine represented the gospel. When Jesus opened the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, showing how the Old Testament was really about him, 
the disciples later said that their hearts burned within them. Augustine says that they metaphorically became intoxicated with joy as Jesus turned the water of the Old Testament into the wine of the gospel. He writes, when he turned the water itself into wine, he showed us that the ancient scripture, that is the Old Testament, comes from him too. For by his order, the jars were filled. This scripture too is indeed from the Lord, but it has no taste if Christ is not understood in it. And that's what we talked about at, uh, at Sunday school today. So if you weren't there, um, you can catch the audio on our, uh, on our podcast. It'll be on our uh, website as well. Well, just as Jesus did not leave, let the party be without wine, but rather provided for the feast extravagantly, so does he provide for us. He gives us his grace extravagantly. And and indeed, if it were not for his extravagant grace, sinners like, like you and I could not be saved. Martin Bucer writes, as he would not allow these guests to lack wine, so also he will not allow us to lack anything, especially spiritual goods related to our salvation. These are certain and bequeathed to us by the Spirit of God. Well, in speaking of certain signs from God's Spirit, um, I would urge you not to miss the sacramental imagery in the wine, uh, which should always remind us of Christ's blood at communion. This is a theme that the uh, church fathers particularly like to pick up on. Fifth century Bishop uh, Caesarius writes, It is he who came down to earth to invite his beloved to marriage with his highness, giving her for a present the token of his blood and intending to give later the dowry of his kingdom. St. Augustine writes, Therefore he has a bride here whom he has redeemed by his blood, and to whom he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge. St. Cyril of Jerusalem writes, He once changed water into wine by a word of command at Cana in Galilee. Should we not believe him when he changes wine into blood? And then we have this sung poetic sermon by 6th century deacon and Jewish convert, Romanus Melodus. What a name. And, uh, and, and uh, unless there's a petition, I promise I will not uh, do uh, my homilies and sung poetry. <laughs> Apparently this deacon liked to do that. Well, this is, this, is, this, was, this, was, uh, this is what his poem said. It said, When Christ, as a sign of his power, clearly changed the water into wine, and the crowd rejoiced, for they considered the taste marvelous. Now we all partake at the banquet in the church, for Christ's blood is changed into wine, and we drink it with holy joy, praising the great bridegroom, for he is the true bridegroom, the son of Mary, the word before all time who took the form of a servant, he who has in wisdom created all things. Every time we come to the Lord's table by faith with thanksgiving, We are having a preview of the great wedding feast of the Lamb that we read about in the book of Revelation. Every time we come to the Lord's table by faith with thanksgiving, we're reminded that he is indeed our bridegroom who gave his life for us. And every time Christians are joined as man and wife by Christ in his church, we see a picture of Christ and his church, a picture of Christ's extravagant, intoxicating grace. And every time we come to either one of these sacraments, 
we hear the voice of the church echoing our Lord's blessed mother saying, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And so we pray that this may be so in our parish, in our families, and in our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive.